Hello and welcome to another edition of Seen Anything Good Lately. I'm Jason Solomons and this is the show that channels all the passion people have for sharing what they're watching. How they want to enthuse you with the same excitement of discovery and entertainment they've just had. And my guests and I should know, I've been a film critic for 25 years in British national newspapers, on radio and on TV. And what does everyone ask me? Seen anything good lately, Jace? So now it's my turn to switch it back on you and find out what they've been watching and what it tells us about them. I have a real love of horror films. It's kind of a private pleasure because no one else in my family will watch horror films. <laughs> I love this. I watched a documentary series called Dynasty. You heard there from my guests this week. They are the best-selling author and screenwriter and telemaster David Nichols, whose adaptation of his own book Us is now on BBC iPlayer. And you heard from Yemi Bamiro, a new star of the London dock-making scene, whose first film, One Man and His Shoes, just debuted at the London Film Festival to great acclaim. We'll find out more about what they've been up to and what they've been watching, but before we hear from David Nichols and Yemi Bamiro, oh, I just can't resist it. I'll tell you if I've seen anything good lately. I saw Pixar's new film, Soul. It was supposed to have been at Cannes earlier this year, but it premiered at the London Film Festival. So I saw it on the big screen before it goes on to enchant the world on Christmas Day, but on the small screen, making its bow on Disney Plus, the streaming platform. Yeah, that is controversial and a shame for the gorgeous visuals that Pixar just do better and better with each movie. This one features also their first African-American cast in many skin tones. And it's about jazz, or one man's obsession with jazz, and the night that he gets his big shot playing at the half-note club in the city, he has a brush with death and gets whisked off to the great beyond, where he drifts about with lost souls and new souls before finding the meaning of life. Huh? Is this heaven? No. It's the great before. This is where new souls get their personalities, quirks, and interest before they go to Earth. Meet 22. I don't want to go to Earth. Stop fighting this. I don't want to. It's a very complicated and ambitious cartoon, is Soul. Great to look at, zingy and funny, with Jamie Foxx and Tina Fey as the lead voices. But the concept does get the better of it, I found. Lots of people swooned over it. But I do find Pixar movies so honed and polished, so worked out, that there's little room for anything that feels spontaneous or improvised, which is a shame given that we're talking about jazz here. It aims high and it seeks philosophy and emotion, but for me it remained glib and a bit stuck in the motivational quote realm to be a true masterpiece. But I'm very picky here. You'll love Soul on Christmas Day on Disney+. Plus. What a treat and a real event on TV to unite the whole family like Morecambe and Wise used to do. David Nichols is a best-selling author whose books include Starter for Ten and One Day, and they've both been turned into successful movies that I would call romantic and comic, but aren't exactly rom-coms. His book, Us, was long-listed for the Booker Prize, and now David, who has previously dashed off great screenplays for such trivial things as Great Expectations, adapts his own novel into a four-part TV series, telling the story of Douglas Peterson, played by a superb Tom Hollander, whose wife 
wife, Saskia Reeves, tells him she wants to leave him. But grimly determined to hang on in denial, Douglas still insists on taking her and his 17-year-old son Albie on a final family holiday, a grand interrailing tour of the great European capitals. Douglas, I've been thinking about leaving. I think our marriage might be over. Ah, so trial separation? Except not a trial. What can I change about myself? We should still go on holiday. We'll have this last summer together. Three weeks, six countries, 12 cities were like, I don't know, you too. I loved watching the series as much as I enjoyed reading the book. The TV's bittersweet tone and performances toggle between sharp, painful comedy and truthful, emotional observations, bringing all the deceptive skill of the book's writing flooding back to me as I watched it. So when I spoke to David Nichols, I began by asking him what, for him, the key difference was between the page and the screen. Yeah, I mean, uh, the novel I wrote 10 years ago, I started writing 10 years ago, and so it's a long, long journey. When I was writing the novel, I thought, God, what must it feel like to be 53? <laughs> and of course, now time has come, rushed towards me and met me, and now I now I know. No, it's been great, actually. It's, it's always daunting adapting your own work because you don't want to upset people, and you know that people are going to say, some people are going to say, oh, it's uh, not as good as the book. But actually, <laughs> in this case, if people have said anything, they've said the opposite, which is, you know, hurtful in its own way. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, I, but, I tell you what I thought. I thought what I loved about the series is that it brought the book flooding back to me because oh, there's a little little gap between having read the book and, and seeing the characters. And I'd forgotten the complexities, the the time shifts, the nuances of the book, and I thought that all came back, and that was I thought a delight. When you sort of populate a, a book like that, the novel is written from his point of view, and you're always in his head, and it's it gets slightly claustrophobic because he has a very particular view of the world. But when you have actors populating it and inhabiting the characters suddenly it becomes much more 3D and fleshed out and perhaps the characters become a bit more sympathetic than they do on the page where you have the relentless first person voice so that's been interesting to me as well I mean there are changes and there are a lot of really nice jokes in the book that you just can't put on screen because he thinks them he doesn't say them but you just have to accept that that's what you lose and what you gain is performance and not just performance but settings and design and music and editing and all of those other pleasures Tom Hollander in as Douglas in in our I, I, I mean, I think he's terrific and I've known him for a long time. I, I, I presume you have. He's one of those actors who's been around in the 90s. I think it's one of the best I've ever seen him be as Douglas in your Yes, in your he's amazing. And again, you know, all of those things that you, you think must be in the script are in his face and, and he provides all the kind of poignancy behind the lines and you don't need to give him a big monologue. He can just do it. And um, that's been a real privilege. And I've been very, very lucky with the actors I've worked with. A lot of people I've admired for years and years. So it's a, it's a thrill to see them bring things to life. David, it, it it's great to have you all us up there and out there. I, I, I mean, I really enjoyed the mood of it and the look of it and how it went around Europe. And it just made me think, gosh, we used to be able to travel. <laughs> it feels feels like yeah. almost like a relic from another era when we're talking now in the, in this kind of looming lockdown times. Yes, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? We were meant to broadcast the show in May. It was meant to, it was meant to be ready for then. And of course, we couldn't quite finish post-production. And I think in May, it would have felt actually just too much. You know, everyone desperate to leave the country for the summer and not being able to. And still now it feels tantalizing. You know, I'd love to spend an afternoon in Paris or Barcelona yeah. or all 
museums. You know, we didn't make it with that intention at all. I mean, if we had an anxiety during production, it was Brexit and, and how that was going to affect the broadcast. Oh, well, don't worry, that's going to be happening soon as well. So. Any second now. <laughs> Any second now. But yeah, I, I, I think when we were a little nervous that people would resent the fact that, that you're having their kind of noses rubbed in all these amazing cities. It was always meant also to be a kind of love letter to these places. Mm. So even though Douglas has a horrible time, we did want the backdrop to be sumptuous and beautiful, to be realistic about what it's like to travel and how stressful it can be and uh, demanding uh, on a relationship, but also to make Venice and Paris and Barcelona look beautiful. I'm wondering what if when, when you were writing it or when you write, if there are any influences on you as a as a writer or as a screenwriter or you know, in, indeed in your head as a director. So I'm going to ask if you've seen anything good lately, David Nichols, yeah. and we'll find out what's impacting on you. Well, we should start with film, shouldn't we? Yeah. Right? Well, I, I, I've been to the cinema twice in the last three weeks. For oh, good for you. For ages and, and loved the experience both times. Two very different British films. But, you know, in this vacuum that's been left by Hollywood, a lot of really wonderful new British independent films are finding a space. And the first film I saw was, was Rocks, which I which I loved and uh, found incredibly powerful, directed by Sarah Gavin, written by Teresa Coco and Claire Wilson. And it, it's, a, in many ways, a very classic piece of British social realism in that Ken Loach tradition. Um, and if you were to hear a synopsis of it, you might think, oh, that sounds a bit tough, yes. a, bit, a bit sort of play for today. But actually, it's so joyous and truthful and humane and and poignant but also uplifting about teenage friendship about characters who rarely are portrayed on screen and 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 uh they're given real depth and treated with such uh warmth and and portrayed with great humanity and detail by the young actors and i i thought it was just a really joyous uplifting film i did too we had those people you mentioned on the on the show sarah and claire and Teresa, and what what a collaboration it seemed and and was in in a way you write screenplays almost quite traditional compared to what yeah. what they they've concocted this looseness that you feel like how much on that is on the page it must be left open to chance you know there's so much sort of fly yeah. on the wall camera work and and music yeah. it's a super cool film i thought yeah i mean i was as a writer i was fascinated by that process i tend to write dialogue that's quite kind of arch i suppose it feels written and and that's just how i write you can tell that the, the movie is you know, has a structure and there are scenes, but the, the the dialogue, whether it's written or improvised, is just so natural and 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 so truthful. And I, I felt, to me, really raw, without ever feeling grim or po-faced or pious. And I, I love that about it. Do you like that tradition, that British social realist tradition? Yeah, I really do. You know, I'm a kind of child of play for today Mike yeah. Lee, Trevor Griffiths and, and and Jack Rosenthal and all of those extraordinary plays that I stayed up late to watch <laughs> I, I didn't go to the theatre uh, at all until I was sort of 18, 19 there was no theatre to see really and where were you more, growing up? Uh, a small town called Eastleigh which is near Southampton mm. uh, and Southampton had a, a very good repertory theatre but I didn't really go except on kind of school trips so play for today was the nearest I got to exciting new writing and acting and 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 this I could see comes from that tradition, but makes it feel really, really fresh and 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 a really lovely cinema experience as well. I went to see it in in Crouch End, and and the, the cinema was as full as it can be in these days, and and everyone was very moved by it. So it was a it was a great reintroduction to to the pictures. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that uh, you know the absence of Hollywood product, which a lot of people sort of saying, oh no, that's closing all the cinemas down. But you're 
right, it's giving some British films the exposure uh, that it's getting in the press and in terms of advertising, in terms of shows like this. They're talking. I think you've been to see another another film that yeah. includes a, a guest of mine in Morfid Clark. Morfid, um, I worked with Morfid. She was in Patrick Melrose, quite a small part. I wish it had been bigger because she's an extraordinary actress. And this is um, St Maud, uh, directed by and written by Rose Glass, a new director. And I have a real love of horror films it's kind of a private pleasure because no one else in my family will watch horror films <laughs> i love this and uh you know found it i i i came home after seeing it and and hannah my partner said what was it like and i said it was absolutely terrifying and she just looks at me bemused as to why would you put yourself <laughs> this is a good thing <laughs> something so grueling and upsetting uh but i i thought it was wonderful and Again, very much part of a tradition. It reminded me of um, Dennis Potter's Brimstone and Treacle in the way that it dealt with... Yes, good reference. ...and and, uh, the kind of seediness of of, um, provincial small towns in the rain and and, um, had the same sense of creeping evil and discomfort. And um, Morfitt is amazing in it. Um, Jennifer Ely, who I think is a wonderful actor. We don't see her enough, do we? No, not nearly enough. I thought she was just really charismatic and powerful. And it is not for everyone. You know, I did find it genuinely distressing in places. When I was speaking to Morford on the show, I'd completely forgotten that it's actually set now. It seemed to me that it yeah. was set, I don't know, 70s or yeah. 80s or something. And, yeah. and my author said, oh, no, she's got millennial fears. She, I see her very much as a millennial. And I was thinking, yeah. blimey, God, I didn't didn't even occur to me that it was like here and now. But of course it is. Yeah, it's set in Scarborough, isn't it? And they yeah. make it look kind of brilliantly kind of run down and sad. I mean, I love Scarborough. It's, a, it's no offence <laughs> to Scarborough. But they've clearly gone out of their way to make it seem kind of damp and mildewy. And, and it has a fantastic atmosphere. And yeah, as you say, it sort of has that. It reminded me a lot of British horror from the 70s. There's like the griminess of it that's part of the the unease. And I thought it was really fascinating about religion and sex and the strange business of caring for someone um, and how that can go horribly wrong. So I, I, I found it very powerful and full of not just Rose Glass, the director and writer, but in every department, there were brilliant new names attached to this movie and I, I loved it. Yeah, do you think that British cinema is in, in a good spot? It's hard to say right now because the, 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 yeah. the economics of the world have taken over it in a way. But uh, that, that let's say that was shot last year, won, won, uh, won an award at the at London Film Festival, the IWC Award. So it felt to me that with those two films that you've known, you know, those are really fine British films, female-led, uh, female-directed and written and, and produced, that we're in a very interesting new spot in terms of films. I, I'm, I think there are lots sort of in the cupboard waiting to come out that are really wonderful, but the, the the, the fact that production is sort of ground to a halt and all these people who rely on, you know, turning up on set for their livelihood, I think they're in a tough place and I do I do really feel for them. I, I hope we can start making things again and, and I hope that, you know, the, 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 these new faces, new directors, new writers will have a showcase in the cinemas. I hope the cinemas survive. Um, so if you can go and see it in a, in a real cinema and you feel comfortable doing so, yeah, strangely, very quickly, Rocks got onto Netflix, and I don't know if that's what are you a Netflix family? What do you and your your kids and your wife watch uh, at home? It's strange because I'm, a, you know, as I was saying, I'm of that generation that looks at the the TV schedules. And yes, my kids don't understand the <laughs> back of the paper or Radio Times. <laughs> they don't understand the concept of a TV schedule, and they do think in terms of you know channels. It's just that their channels are Netflix and Amazon and BBC and and Sky, and you know they 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 don't have that. Same same fixed 
um, notion. In many ways, it's very healthy. They love watching stuff. They love consuming stuff, but they don't stumble upon things in the way I did when I was their age. You know, they're not made to watch things and the, there's a danger that they kind of settle into a groove and just look for the same kind of shows over yes. and over again rather than... So what do you do in this instance? Do you sort of go around um, and sort of say, can't you watch something good for you? We have two or three evenings where they have to, you know, put their phones down and we watch a proper film mm-hmm. all the way through. Such as? Checking our, checking our films. Uh, we're currently watching American Animals, which is a film for um, production from a couple of years ago based on a true story, which I'm really, really enjoying. That's the other thing is their attention span means it's quite hard to get through anything over. That's a difficult film, American Animals. It's, <laughs> it it's not is. a brilliant film, but it's... It's a brilliant film. Very interesting film. My, my son is enjoying it. My, my daughter is allowed to go on her phone during that, <laughs> but, uh, because she's a bit younger and it's a bit more mature. But we're really enjoying that. And so, yeah, we have we have two or three evenings of proper watching during the week and also they have their own private passions which they're allowed to go and watch themselves. your daughter is named after one of my favorite french movie stars yes. uh, uh romy scheider um do, does she know that and does she does she has she had to watch some romy uh, films she knows what romy schneider looks like and we haven't found anything yet uh in the in the romy schneider catalog that's quite right for her but um, but we will but yeah there are pictures of romy schneider around the house but um oh, well, that's, that's, that's very true. i mean if french has french cinema always been an interest to, to you and an inspiration to you yeah massively i mean i've, I've stolen a lot in particular from Truffaut, you know from the 400 blows and the, the other and what are they called antoine the old antoine duhamel Antoine Duanel series. Right, and the Antoine Duanel books, which I, uh, sorry, Antoine Duanel films, which, uh, you know, follow a young man at different stages of his life. I, I, those films are very, very influential. Um, I love Eric Roma. Uh, our big Saturday night movie was Robert Bresson's um, A Man Escaped, which is a film I've seen many, many times and really, really love. So, yeah, French classic, French art cinema or something like I should I mean, stress that uh, to our listeners that you are dressed in a sort of French <laughs> black polo neck. <laughs> I'm this sure you've got a, an ashtray overflowing with gauloise at the side. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's it's complete. Uh, just before you go, David, fantastic recommendations there. Have you read anything good lately? Uh, yeah, I've, uh, very quickly, because I, uh, I, I'm i very passionate about both these books, particularly this novel. I've just finished a novel by Andrew Hagen called Mayflies, which starts as this kind of uh, account of um, a gang of kind of working class Glaswegian kids in the 80s going to Manchester for a, um, a music festival. And it, the first half of the novel is this kind of rambunctious, outrageous sort of train spotting-esque kind of mad trip to Manchester and uh, to the ending in the Hacienda, a kind of celebration of youth. Oh, wow. I fancy this. Politics, and it's great. But then something happens halfway through, which I can't tell you. But the second half of the book is written in a completely different register and uh, is incredibly tender and poignant about friendship and friendship over time. I found the book intensely moving and beautifully written and really brilliant about the... um, the strength of friendship and the difference between friendship when you're 18 and uh, 50. Uh, so, so Andrew Hagen, a, for, a former film critic as well, so I always like yeah. to see well, how well he's gone. Through, 
it's shot through with film and cultural references in the way that you do when you're that age and you want to, you know, shout out loud about the, the books and films and music you love. So it's it's a really wonderful novel, very affecting, very funny, and um, the best book I've read this year, I think. I, I really loved it. Oh, stick that on the jacket cover. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'd be honoured. It's a really wonderful book. And, and, and uh, I felt very jealous of it, actually, if anything. So it's um, Andrew Hagen's Fireflies. Uh, mayflies. Mayflies, excuse mayflies. me. Mayflies. mayflies, yeah, Mayflies. A really um, beautiful book, I think. And then uh, I try not to read fiction just before I fall asleep because I get to um, het up. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, before I turn the light out at night, I always read a piece of nonfiction. And I'm really enjoying a, a, a an unconventional biography of um, Mike Nichols. You know, when I was watching... No relation, this, we should add. No, no, I have two L's. He's just a single L. I'd have loved to have met him because um, The Graduates and Catch-22 and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf were huge formative influences on me, particularly The Graduates. Yeah, well, hence um, the outfit as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, but also he was with uh, Nichols and May, Elaine May. They were a great screwball comic yeah. pairing. Yeah, amazing improvisers, brilliant comic imaginations. And and uh, this uh, it's not a conventional biography. It's, it's told in the voices of 150 people who knew him. At different stages of his life so it's a sort of what's the phrase an, an oral account of of his work and his methods and his life and um it's incredibly gossipy full of brilliant anecdotes and really really entertaining oh i would love uh, this but what's it called it's called life isn't everything uh and yes it's uh, it's edited by ash carter and sam kashner uh, but it's 150 voices talking about their encounters with mike nichols at different stages of his work well i mean he worked with everyone when he was sort of the center of new hollywood in a way yeah. you know, in, a, in an easy feeling he did primary colors as well if you go, go later in his career uh, a terrific yeah, hollywood a, voice there's a very funny story of uh, harrison ford saying he was invited to his birthday party and Mike said it's just a few people and he turned up and there were 800 people and Harrison Ford says the only person who wasn't there was Jesus <laughs> <laughs> so it's very star-studded as well and, and incredibly entertaining and that's my that's my little treat before I go try and try to go to sleep well, brilliant. Life is life is much more than everything. Uh, it's been brilliantly captured by you in your book, uh, in all your books, and it beautifully done so in Us as well, certainly a late life. Uh, thank you for running through all those recommendations for us, David Nichols. A real pleasure to see you. I don't know, in between watching all these films and reading all these books, you've got to go and write a screenplay. Better go yeah. and let you do it. <laughs> I bet. It's meant to be in in a week's time, so I, I, I should get to it. But uh, <laughs> thanks very much, Jason. It's nice to talk to you. Lovely to see you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Bye-bye. And Us is available to binge watch now. All four episodes are streaming on iPlayer, while the show's mood board of tunes compiled by DJ David Nichols is up on Spotify, including this gorgeousness from Tracy Thorne. And I'm a get Yemi Bamiro on in a bit, but what's that you're saying? Oh, you seen anything good lately, Jace? 
Well, if you insist, I saw One Night in Miami, part of the London Film Festival, directed by Regina King, making her debut as a filmmaker with a powerful, thoughtful, very skillfully done what-if drama about the night in Miami in 1964 that Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston to win his first heavyweight championship belt and celebrated by talking the night away with his spiritual advisor Malcolm X and his pals uh, the footballer Jim Brown and singer Sam Cook. All the actors in this are great. Eli Gorey as Clay and Leslie Odom Jr. as Cook in particular. And the ideas are very strong in the back and forth as they push each other's buttons about blackness and masculinity and how best to influence the world from their positions as black icons. Yes, Cassius Marcellus Clay is the new heavyweight champion of the world, boy. Yes, he is. And I don't even have yes, a scratch on my face. Oh my goodness. Cash. What's wrong, Cash? What? Cash, what? Why am I so pretty? Oh. <laughs> and I'm only 22 years old. There is no way I'm supposed to be this great. Look, Alexander the Great conquered the whole world at the age of 30, and yeah. I conquered the world of boxing at 22 <laughs> without sustaining so much as a scratch. That's right. <gasps> there he goes. You do the math. All right. It's a very enjoyable piece, serious as it may be, uh, written as a play originally by Kemp Powers, who co-wrote the screenplay to, yep, the Pixar movie I talked about earlier, Soul. In the film, Malcolm and Sam do get very heated, cooked even, you could say, but it does lead to Sam writing this masterpiece. That's One Night in Miami. And so to Yemi Bamiro now, a South London filmmaker whose debut doc feature is One Man and His Shoes, tracing the success between basketball legend Michael Jordan and his promotion of Air Jordan Nike shoes. From the inception of the shoes to the ads with Spike Lee and the consumer avarice that made kids kill to get their hands on a pair. It's a study of race, consumerism, marketing, 90s hip-hop culture and iconography and it was definitely one of the best discoveries of the 2020 London Film Festival. As was the man who made it, Yemi Bamiro. What shoes are you wearing? I can't quite see them there, Yemi. Uh, I'm in my house, so I'm not wearing any. I think my wife would be a bit annoyed if I was, yeah, wearing any shoes up here so yeah nothing <laughs> you're clomping around in, in in big basketball do you have a collection <laughs> yourself i'm not i'm not really a sneakerhead. i do like i do like trainers and i do have a stupid amount of, of shoes but yeah i i wouldn't say i'm a sneakerhead. have you got colors. more shoes than your wife yeah i have, yeah. <laughs> I have yeah. that is good <laughs> That is very manly. You've got to be man enough to have more shoes than one guy. <laughs> <laughs> so why the obsession with the, the, the shoes in, in, in this movie? Why make a film about shoes, basically? Initially, I was interested in, in collectors. I was interested in people that specifically collect Air Jordan sneakers. I'd never seen any films about that. Uh, per se. I'd, I'd seen films about sneaker culture or collectors um, across a number of brands, but I'd never seen anyone that 
you know, or any collectors or any long form sort of like documentary on people that specifically collect Air Jordans. So that's, that was like the entry point, I suppose. But then I started thinking about, well, I don't know how interesting that is. And, and if that sustains sort of like a, a, you know, a 90 minute feature length narrative, I kind of thought that, you know, you could see people who collect Air Jordans on, on YouTube. So then that's when I started to think about the origin story of the Air Jordan sneaker. And I started to think about Nike's relationship with Michael Jordan and sort of like brand endorsement deals and how 35 years on, you know, nothing has ever eclipsed the relationship from an endorsement impact perspective, from a financial perspective, you know, nothing's ever eclipsed Nike and, and Michael Jordan's uh, relationship. So yeah, that's pretty much how we ended up with the film. There's a bit in your film where you talk to some of the collectors uh, mm. and there's a French guy who sort of says, well, well I'm an addict, basically, you know, yeah. I, <laughs> this is an addiction. I, now he suddenly yeah. realised that he's addicted to this stuff. Um, yeah. and, and I think that was, that, that's a really fascinating part of it. And there's another guy uh, whose name I forget you're, you're, I know you're quite close to him the guy who said he's got whatever it is a thousand pairs and he keeps them all in those kind of little kind of plastic yeah, he's, boxes yeah he's called he's called Jumpman his real name's Mark but he's called Jumpman Bostick and uh, yeah he's probably one of America's biggest Air Jordan collectors we filmed him in his basement in just outside of Detroit and going into his basement is like going into a museum it's like going back in time because he doesn't just collect sneakers he collects anything that was you know anything that Michael Jordan marketed so you know the cereal boxes the Gatorade uh he's got the trading cards the basketball trading cards he's got like all the Chicago Bulls apparel the jackets the jeans he's got everything it's incredible I'm I'm constantly amazed and fascinated by that level of enthusiasm and and passion for for one thing you can understand it uh, that it's for Michael Jordan were you a basketball fan yourself because you know I, I love watching basketball but I'm not I wouldn't say I know it you know I'm a, a mad Arsenal fan for example so same I think- here get it you are team fantastic well there we are so if it was about Ian Wright for example (laughs) to me at the same time was the thing and he was Nike as well Ian Wright yeah exactly Uh, so you know you try and find an equivalent but Jordan's Mm. just massive he transcended the sport we we knew even at the time here in the UK how big Michael Jordan was because he had his own sneakers exactly yeah yeah I I think I remember being sort of like a teenager in South London going to secondary school and and having a Chicago Bulls jacket and just my friends having Chicago Bulls jacket you know just knowing that Michael Jordan and and that Bulls franchise was just larger than life. And I think if I think about back to the 90s, I think 90s NBA, that decade is is my favourite sort of like decade of any sort of like sports franchise. You know, I think 90s NBA is, is incredible, like not just the players and the personalities. I'm, I'm talking about just that generation, like what they used to wear off court, like, you know, those incredible suits. I think the music of that time, you know, it, it's just such a fascinating Do you think that's when it all, all came together as the, the right culture? What, with, with the, I suppose it's been immortalized a bit in the last dance suddenly and mm. on netflix which everyone who comes mm. on this show is watching it seems and yeah. you've come along yeah. just at the right time and i've got to say yeah. you're not bouncing on that coattail because you were doing this way before then so that's official right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no I, I think you're right i think that that era and that decade you know the 90s was special because i think that was you know that was a breakthrough for for many things i think you know that's when rap music had its mass market commercial 
breakthrough, whether you're talking about Eric B and Rakim, if you're talking about MC Hammer, if you're talking about all of, you know, the conscious kind of like hip hop, De La, Tribe, you know, the 90s was just so rich with all of those things. And, you know, it wasn't just the music, it was sort of like African-American personalities. It was like Eddie Murphy, it was Michael Jackson, it was, you know, Michael Jordan. It was all of these fascinating sort of like facets of popular culture. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because a lot of people in your film talk about selling blackness to white America. That seems to be one of the mm. big battles. And obviously commercially, yeah. Michael Jordan had to do that. He had to transcend those barriers mm. as, a, as an advertising icon, as a logo, whatever it was. And as you see, mm. you've just enumerated all of those cultural icons, you know, who did mm. break it. You know, the black Elvis mm. was, was Eddie mm. Murphy. Michael mm. was doing black or white. And it was mm. just, it was sort of a, a flowering time for black power mm. in a way, commercially mm. and artistically. I remember, because I, I was born in 83. So I grew up in the 90s and, and you just remember all of those things me and my sister used to sort of like sit in front of the tv and 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 we used to remember sort of like the mc hammer sort of like channel 4 saturday morning commercial that used to not even commercial he had his own cartoon on saturday mornings and we were obsessed with that and then bobby brown and whitney houston just that you know just that era and everything that was sort of like happening it was seeing people like you on television was it just felt like a rarity before that time it was those those are like some of my earliest memories so you know i've always been a fascinated with American culture and, and that's probably why because I think in the in the 90s me and my sister were just like you know in a South London flat just like binging on like American pop culture whether that be music or whether that be TV or whether that be any, anything else. This uh, last season my next guest led his team the Chicago Bulls into the NBA playoff scoring record of uh, an amazing 63 points in a single game. He is only 23 years of age. Please welcome Michael Jordan folks. I got one thing to say. Yeah, what's that? I see Adidas shoes. Yeah. Why? Well, now, we can't talk about this because the last time we started talking about shoes, there was a huge deal, and they had to run up to the legal department and wake up the attorneys. <laughs> now, I know you got a huge contract with the company. Put, put your feet okay. down. <laughs> now, how, how much do you... No, stop that. Now, see, now, they won't let any of this on. Okay. Now, how much do you get paid just to wear these shoes? A lot. Did you know what it would be like getting access in terms of, you know, you, you've interviewed some really interesting figures. I, I, people say, oh, The Last Dance is great on Netflix because of the access, like the backs, mm. the, the, the sort of changing rooms and all that. But you have access to sort of different people. You went for sort of cultural commentators, really interesting mm. and fascinating people who I didn't know at all. I mean, the, the, the woman that you get to talk to, I thought she was absolutely brilliant who talks about it. And then is it Scoop Jackson, who, which yeah, is Scoop a great Jackson. name, great name for yeah. journalists. It's amazing. Yeah, it's an amazing name. <laughs> but they, yeah. they, they, they have fantastic fantastic insights fantastic accents they just got a great mm. jazz to their talk and and, and their yeah. insight how did you track them all down how did you find these people well i think it was a long period i think i started with mj's biographer a guy called Rodin lazenby he's pretty much written the most definitive book on on michael jordan which is called the life and he had to speak to everyone and he i you know i interviewed Roland pretty early on in the process I want to say 2014 we made this film over a seven-year period and once I'd got in with him and he sort of he he 
I told him about the project and he'd met me and, you know, I flew all the way out to Virginia to sort of like talk to him. I think he saw the enthusiasm and he saw that, you know, I'd maybe had the fire in my belly to sort of sit with this and, and, and really talk to the people that mattered. That, that was the thing. I wanted to make a definitive story. So I wanted to talk to the men and women who were around at the time, the people that were responsible for creating this quote unquote phenomenon, like from a shoe perspective, you know, so that'd be like the shoe designers, you know, and, and this all happened in the late seventies. So this was like, these guys were in their thirties, maybe early forties. So obviously they're a lot older now. So I think a, a part of it was like this random guy from South London just emails you and says he wants to talk to you about this period of your life. And you're sort of like, you know, getting on some of the guys, Peter Moore, Sonny Vaccaro, they're at peace with their legacy. They were more than welcome to sort of like and share also people things. don't often talk to them about their work because, you know, it's not the glamorous, they're shoe designers or marketeers or, yeah, you know, they're yeah. illustrators. They're not like they were film stars or rock stars, you know. Exactly. So people quite like saying, yeah, I was involved in this pop cultural yeah. creation of a pop cultural icon that still, you know, lasts today. And your enthusiasm must have been must have been very infectious. I loved also that you, you spent quite a lot of time on the Spike Lee relationship because I loved yeah. Spike Lee. And I remember, yeah. of course, when when she's got to have it came out and when do the right thing yeah. came out they changed they changed my life yeah. but i also knew at the time that he did all these spots with michael mm. jordan that I, we in the uk yeah. didn't get to see them i just was like i yeah. want to see all these things you know it was yeah. and when i went to america for the first time in in 1990 i was like I'm, i've got to see us i've got to sit down and watch the spike <laughs> lee's commercials because they were these yeah. kind of and i get to and i've seen them now in your film and it's so good they're so good they're amazing aren't they i think uh jim riswold who is actually the the former sort of like executive who gave Spike Lee his job um, in in terms of like directing those ads. I think he says they're the most groundbreaking like you know sports ads ever made, and I, and I think he's right. I think if you if you kind of look at everything that's come after it, it's it's tried to be as cool as try it's tried to be as funny as those ads, you know, and they're effortless. And and I think you know, some of the contributors in the film talk about Michael. Jordan doesn't talk a lot in those ads. That's all Spike. So he directed them and then he played the character of Mars Blackmoon and just like killed it. So yeah, they were always my favourite ads even before I started thinking about making this film. And I, I wanted it to sort of like be a little bit of a nostalgia trip to sort of like include them in the film because a certain age group of people will remember those ads and remember sort of, you know, seeing them before NBA games, if you could sort of like get them, if you were able to see them. So yeah, I, I always love those ads. And well, it awesome. comes across and I'm really glad. I've never seen anyone, you know, and I've seen a lot of Spike retrospectives and talked to people yeah. who, well, I've interviewed Spike many times myself uh, yeah. and we talk about Arsenal a lot. But yeah. I, I, we <laughs> actually don't concentrate on what really you forget were probably made his career I mean he probably made oh. in terms of the, the the general acceptance of him and his affiliation with this icon uh but made him famous but more than we know here in the UK a hundred percent I and I think it's also fair to say that the brand owes a lot of credit to those ads and to Spike this is sort of like a relationship that dates back 40 years you know he's been involved in that brand and I think everyone would always sort of like point at those adverts so yeah I think you're right I think it was vice versa I think it worked for Spike and I think it worked for the brand as well in terms of like recognition and like legacy. I've got to touch on the fact that your film also touches on a dark side, which I thought was great. Did you always know that that was where you were going to kind of you know, stamp down on this? This was a proper story because it was about, you know, life and death. 
A hundred percent. I, you know, because I remember being a, a teenager and, and, and remember hearing, because I was obsessed with rap music when I was a teenager and I still am. And, I, you know, I, I used to remember stories of kids on subways in New York City getting robbed for their Air Jordan sneakers. I used to remember those yeah. stories. So we wanted to tell the definitive uh, story of the Air Jordan with this film. And I didn't feel that you could leave that part out. You know, I, I kind of felt that that would have been a little bit disingenuous and we didn't really want to rewrite history. We wanted to challenge it and we wanted to probe it and we wanted to examine it. So, yeah, I always knew that we would include that in the film. Well, I'm going to ask you, uh, have you seen anything good lately, Yemi Bamira? I watched a Netflix documentary called Social Dilemma. You've I don't know that. if you've seen that. No, I've seen it up there and I've seen oh, okay. that maybe I should go into it. And then I'm so worried about what it's going to tell me about <laughs> everyone's got my yeah, data. That... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty scary, but I did, I did enjoy it. You know, I just the fact that they've got all of those people from huge tech companies who no longer work there just telling you how they design this stuff and telling you what their sort of like objective was when they were designing it, basically to keep you on your hey. your phone or to keep you on the, the app or to keep you on that platform is pretty scary. So yeah, I've watched that and I'm I'm also like re-watching Succession as well. I have um, watched that. I watched the binge that at the beginning of lockdown, oh which God. feels like months ago now. It yeah, is. yeah. Uh, no. I just bought all two the two series right this is what we're going to do i thought fine we'll do this and then lockdown will finish and it'll be fine it just fit in succession little did i know but i mean yeah, i just it's just phenomenal i was hooked just on like, it it's, it's just incredible writing and acting and yeah i was just i i, I finished something and i was just like i, I think i'm going to jump back in i watched a documentary series called uh dynasty which was i think about murdoch mm. on the bbc and that's that's what kind of like uh prompted me to re-watch uh succession so yeah those are the things that i'm kind of have watched or am watching. Obviously with your film, One Man in His Shoes, you, um, mm. I think you do some of the music yourself. Is that right? Did I spot that in the credits there? No, no. Like one of um, one of the collaborators, one of uh, the sort of uh, musicians is a friend of mine, composers, I should say. And, and yeah, I've known him for over 10 years and we, we always spoke about, you know, working together. So it was a pleasure for Thomas and Bubba to sort of like jump in and, and do all the music for the film. Because he's got that vibe of 90s, hip-hop if you want a little bit of jazz and it could be a sample that i'm thinking is it a sample they found something that the tribe used yeah. or something yeah no no we couldn't afford well, it that's why yeah, we thinking. couldn't afford any music yeah, yeah so if it was you, all composed if you could have afforded some music what would mm. you have put in there Oh my God, like I would have gone crazy on Tribe. I would have gone crazy on Eric B and Rakim. I would have gone crazy on Dela. I would have gone crazy on sort of like maybe Jungle Brothers. Mm. I would have gone crazy on Beastie Boys. <laughs> I would have gone crazy on... Yeah, what did you have on your temp? What did you have on your temp track? You can put them on there, can't you? Yeah, yeah. I think we had Eric B and Rakim. We had... Um, well, I know you got had... Soul or... No, Don't Sweat the Technique. Yeah. No, we kind of, we went crazy with the temp music. It was, <laughs> so, so when we were like when we came to composing the film it was like so hard because like for for like months we'd been staring and and watching this film with all this incredible temp music and then we had to sort of like just strip it back but then that you know that's testament to how good like Bubba and, and Thomas did the composers because I think the first time we watched it with all of their music we were like oh my god like we don't miss any of that do you know what I mean so yeah no it, it was in yeah it was a good process yeah absolutely and I didn't miss it either I was thinking I thought when I watched I watched I thought this is going to be full of 90s hip-hop fantastic yeah and, and then yeah, it wasn't yeah. and I thought oh yeah. well of course it's, they couldn't afford it but actually it doesn't miss it yeah. at all they got the vibe yeah. of it and actually exactly. probably better not for it otherwise it would just be like 
you know, it would be too much fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think so. Yeah, yeah. It would was you... important just to get the tone and the, and the vibe. So what, yeah, that's what, what if you could pick a tribe track, which would you use? I would uh, find a way. So that's later tribes. Yeah. So that's like maybe ninety six. Uh, obviously, can that... I? Yeah, I thought again. Yeah, can I kick it? Yeah, yeah. Um, that goes for the uh, Ian electric. Wright. You can, you can use that when you do your Ian Wright 90s football UK. Yeah, thing. yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I love Tribe. So, yeah, I think I think maybe those tracks. Okay, Low End Theory is my favourite album of all time. Oh, my God. Just heroes, man. They're just, yeah, just incredible. Masterpiece album. Yeah, me, Bamiro. Fantastic talking 90s hip-hop with you. Fantastic oh, talking Jason, Michael Jordan. So much. Real pleasure. Yeah, and and listen, enjoy the London Film Festival. I know it's the worst year that you could possibly <laughs> make your debut at the London Film Festival. But I, I still think you can, you and Michael can soar above this pandemic <laughs> thing. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, man. That's a tribe called Quest. Can I kick it? Playing us out there. Uh, a request of kinds from Yemi Bamiro. And his film One Man and His Shoes is out in UK cinemas from October the 23rd. Great stuff, everyone. What a lovely show. Lots of recommendations in there, and not least the great works of my guests, David Nichols and Yemi Bamiro. But before we go, I have to tell you something else that I've seen. Mangrove. It was the opening film of the London Film Festival, and it would be wrong of me not to tell you how good it is. Definitely one of the best films I've seen this year, and a perfect opener to the London Film Festival. Steve McQueen is directing, and his meticulous reconstruction of the events around the raids on the Mangrove restaurant in Notting Hill which, after a street protest, leads to the landmark trial of the Mangrove Nine in 1970. It's really brilliantly done. The actors, Sean Parks, Letitia Wright, Malachi Kirby, who plays Darkus Howell, they're all brilliant. And the impeccable structure of the film is really something to admire, because McQueen gradually builds up these tensions and the threat to black life from police, while London, in the background, progresses onwards. The Grenfell Tower, you can see in, in the corner of one shot, the West way is built and he captures that with a bit of archive photography all set to bouncing reggae music and then the trial begins and it's done perfectly with the right amount of rage and injustice but with a calm dignity that's really necessary there's even a sense of humor which is i suppose remarkable given this was nothing funny about it uh, institutional racism is never a laughing matter it's just a monumentally good film the best i can remember the lff ever starting with i can think it's just perfect what a shame that there were no big crowds uh, to celebrate it to mark it to cheer it and to bounce along a party afterwards to the rhythm of toots and the maid Towels. Still, we can pay tribute here on Seen Anything Good Lately, uh, and it doesn't get better for a British cinema than Steve McQueen's Mangrove. I'll see you next week as we go out with Pressure Drop by Toots and the Maytals from the Mangrove soundtrack. Me, 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 me.